I'm Prime Minister Boris Johnson and you're listening to Brits in the Big Apple with Hannah Young, Consul General. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple and I'm Hannah Young. My guest today is Errol Barnett, anchor and national correspondent for CBS News based in New York City. Errol previously worked for CBS News in DC, where he covered the Trump administration, among other topics and breaking news events. Errol has also worked extensively at CNN as an anchor and broadcaster, including being part of the most viewed streaming event in history during President Obama's inauguration on CNN.com. Errol also hosted the network's longest running feature program, Inside Africa, a weekly half hour documentary which earned awards for its depiction of the continent with Errol reporting from 22 countries in his adventurous self-described journey of discovery. As a CNN foreign correspondent, he was based in Johannesburg and covered the death of Nelson Mandela, the Oscar Pistorius murder trial and various minor strikes. Errol, welcome to Brits and the Big Apple. Anna, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. And that's quite the introduction. <laughs> well, it's quite a story. And I wonder, actually, if you could kick off by giving us a bit of an overview of your career journey and how you came to be in New York. Absolutely. Well, you know, the, the question I get asked most often is how I even came to be in the U.S., um, to start with. And it all started for me on a snowy Easter Sunday in Bletchley Hospital there in the Midlands um, where I was born. And my mom's family is from Liverpool. My dad's family emigrated from Jamaica and I grew up in Milton Keynes. So I can kind of hear the groans through the listening devices now, but for the uninitiated, Milton Keynes was England's most ambitious effort at building a new town to deal with the congestion of London and to create new affordable housing that was safe for people who could work in London, but live about an hour's commute outside of that. And so the first decade of my life was truly vibrant. Uh, you know, the, the vision for Milton Keynes was that there would be no building taller than the tallest tree. And we had these uh, rubber redways weaving around town so that cyclists and runners wouldn't cross directly over the busy roads. And because of my blended upbringing, you know, my mom and my biological father separated when I was very young, but my mother remarried an American who was in the U.S. Air Force and stationed in England. And so the first decade of my life had so much variety, whether it was Jamaican music and food and reggae, or whether it was my mom's very Liverpudlian Scouser attitude uh, toward everything or learning about the US. My stepfather taught me about basketball. I was the first kid on my street to have one of those Nintendo gaming systems, which made me the coolest kid in town for a couple of weeks. Um, but things shifted when my stepfather was deployed to the first Gulf War. And for the first time, I remember being, I think nine years old or 10, when I was watching those night vision images of Kuwait and Baghdad, on networks like CNN and feeling frightened for my stepdad, wondering if he would make it back. He did. And, you know, to me as a kid, he's just this big war hero. And he got an opportunity to be relocated from the green countryside of England to the deserts of Arizona. So at age 10, we moved over. My older brother, I have an older brother who's 10 years older, he stayed back in England. Um, my older sister moved with us. And it was my mom and my stepfather. But within a few years, um, my sister died suddenly and tragically, and it truly shattered the family. 
My mom and stepfather fell into a very deep depression. My father's was compounded by the PTSD he was experiencing from war. And we went from moving into this nice big Arizona home. I mean, one thing that really hit me when you move across is how big American homes are. Big home with a pool that was quite um, idyllic, but things changed. And uh, my mother and my stepfather separated we were bouncing around from apartment to apartment, and I was a teenager in high school in the U.S. trying to find my way and figure out how I could be useful. And it was my curiosity that really allowed me to punch through. You know, so frequently as when you move to the U.S. with this type of accent, people hmm. question who you are and where you're from and what your story is. And I had always been too shy and reluctant to even say what I've just said to you. And so my defense mechanism was turning it around and asking people about themselves. Well, where are you from? And where does your family originate? And I learned really important lessons that A, you are surprised usually when someone tells you their origins and B, people love to talk about themselves. And so I was able in high school while I was finding my way to gain some traction with that curiosity. And so I threw myself into all sorts of extracurricular activities. The one that really stuck was the video production class that allowed me to have an interview show as a teenager in high school. And to make a long story short, there was a network called Channel One News that broadcast into high schools like mine. And they offered me a job when I was still 17. So I distinctly remember being in my principal's office on my 18th birthday signing this quite lucrative to a teenager contract. And I moved to LA uh, months after high school graduation. And that was 20 years ago. And I've been reporting and traveling to interesting places and speaking to fascinating people ever since. Wow. That's an incredibly powerful story. Uh, and um, uh, I just wonder how much the those images of uh, your grandfather and the um, your stepfather, sorry, in the, the Gulf War, how, how much did that affect your interest in current affairs and the role of the military as part of that? Yeah, immediately, it made me realize the link between events that may seem and sound far away, and your own home. And so as I grew up and come to the States, I had always been interested to know more about that. While I was in high school, the 2000 election was happening here in the U.S., the, the very close and contested election between George Bush and Al Gore. And I was fascinated by how they didn't have a result when election night came. And I actually stayed in my high school video production room pulling together recordings of all the other networks saying it's too close to call. If you remember, some networks called it for Al Gore and then had to retract it. And I was just fascinated at how this massive, amazing country couldn't get their elections together. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a very positive view of the US military, of course. And I saw my dad as a war hero. And he showed me this. There's one image he has from when he was deployed in Kuwait, where he put my name on a bomb. And he said to Saddam from Errol. And as a kid, you just think that's so cool. But as you get older, and when I was at um, Channel One News, I, I used the money I made from that to put myself through college, and I studied political science with a focus on international relations, you start to understand the real cost of these types of military ventures. And certainly 9-11 demonstrated to us all the, the linkages between what happens overseas and what it means to domestic interests. 
Mm. And I've continued to be curious and to be inquisitive. Um, and I think it's helped me understand different perspectives when it comes to the stories that we tell every day. Mm. And um, I think when you were at Channel One, am I right in saying that you were their youngest anchor or reporter? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you were 18. Uh, and as part of that, you covered Barack Obama's DNC keynote address. Um, I was in the room. Amazing. I was in the room. I mean, it just was tell, so us, cool. tell us about that experience and, and again, you know, how that has uh, helped cement your career in journalism. Well, you know, as I just mentioned, the, even getting into journalism for me was about survival. There wasn't mm. a fallback plan. The, the idea of continuing to live at home with mum was just not an option. Mm. And I really have always appreciated not knowing something and being curious and having follow-up questions. At Channel One, they helped me to write, to um, learn how to craft an interview, to get to the heart of something quickly. And they traveled me not just around the United States, which was incredible, but also to the Netherlands to do a story on ecstasy trafficking, um, to Alaska to do stories on teenagers who were serving life sentences for killing people at school. I mean, issues that remain to this day. Mm -hmm. And when I was able to travel to Washington and even to New York for the first time in my life, I always felt just very fortunate, very lucky to be in a position where you get to, you know, seek out the things you're curious about and travel across the country and the world and meet fascinating people. Being at the on the floor of the DNC when Barack Obama gave his keynote address, which is really the first time on a national stage, people were wondering who Barack Obama was. It was also very validating for me. You know, my mother is a blonde white woman and my, my dad is a brown man from Jamaica. So for me to have that blended background and to see someone like Barack Obama rise to that level was really inspiring. Mm -hmm. And um, I've always tried to remember that people come from different perspectives and point of views and that your own point of view is important and that you should remember remember that as you as you seek answers to things mm. and sticking on the theme of diversity um you anchored um cnn newsroom leading coverage of the ferguson missouri protests and other um related topics what can you tell us a bit more about your views on the state of social justice in the u.s and i guess particularly what role journalism can play in addressing those kinds of social inequalities. Yeah, that was actually quite a full circle moment for me because at Channel One, and I was there between the ages of like 18 and 23, mm. when it would come time for Black History Month, they would typically assign me some type of Black History Month profile or story, which I was happy to do. But one that really stood out to me was a bus tour through the South put together by a high school teacher who was Jewish and wanted to teach his students the sacrifices that were made in the 50s and 60s and why that was necessary to have the freedoms we have today. And so I was there as a journalist, just kind of be a fly on the wall. We ended up going to places like Atlanta, learning about Martin Luther King Jr., but also the Edmund Pettus Bridge. I interviewed John Lewis, the late uh, congressman who passed and was a real icon of the movement. And I did it from the perspective of this is old, outdated history, and we're commemorating it because it's that time of the year. Mm. As I've progressed through my career and I had the experience to do the Inside Africa program um, for a number of years for CNN, 
which coincided with the death of Nelson Mandela, what I realized was that it really is an ancient history. It's active and alive today, and it still needs people to make it happen as far as freedom and democracy. It's not a relic that we read about and that we have to secure our, our futures. I think we all take it for granted. And so I came back from my coverage um, of the African continent, very optimistic, completely excited. And, you know, it's the age uh, that was during the Obama presidency, just feeling as if the world was moving in the right direction. And with so many of it, that wasn't the only incident in which um, the police shooting of a black man stirred massive demonstrations. It, it really has continued. And the death of George Floyd and the murder that we all witnessed was, was really something I think that jumps out at people. But one of the questions that sticks with me is, well, what about the events that weren't recorded? Mm. What about the things we haven't seen? And I think as a journalist, it is our job to, to show those incidents. But I think it's even more important to put it in context. Um, the largest civil demonstrations in American history took place in 2020 after the death of George Floyd during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I do think things are shifting, but my question remains, why is that still necessary? All these decades after the civil rights movement and after so much liberation around the world. Um, I don't know what the answer is, but I, I do think in this modern day and age, you know, hate crimes in the United States are up. Um, in the past few years dramatically. And there are, are fears about these Afghan refugees coming to the US and how they will be treated by the more right-wing white nationalists who pose a threat. And I think that's an indictment to the, the equal world that we've all fought and, and try to help create and facilitate. And I think it just requires all of us to kind of wake up a little bit and not be too comfortable. And remember that if you enjoy equality, freedoms and democracy, then it's kind of each of our responsibilities to kind of make sure it continues. Mm. I think that's a really powerful message, particularly in your ending about the importance of everybody taking responsibility and recognizing that we, we all have a part to play in this, um, you know, regardless of our background. Yeah, I always grew up thinking, well, I'm glad they did all those difficult things back in the day, so I don't have mm. to. And the reality is, I think a lot of us think that way. Mm. Uh, but the reality is, um, we all need to actively kind of help curate and facilitate a, a more enjoyable environment. Mm. And you hosted Inside Africa for, I think, three or four years? It was only two. That's all I could do. <laughs> because it was, we, we trekked to 22 countries in two years with an incredible producing team and, and um, production team as well. And I had never been to this continent of more than a billion people. So when CNN approached me, I was already working for them as an anchor and correspondent in Atlanta, but when they approached me with hosting this program and being based in Johannesburg, I was insistent that like, look folks, none of my family is directly from there and I have never been there. So there's so much I don't know. There's no way I'm an expert. And they said, make that part of the program, you know, things that surprise you, your journey of discovery and doing it in that transparent way, I think allowed us to really reveal some, some awesome aspects of every region of, of, of such a beautiful continent. I mean, it's probably hard to do justice to those two years and the time that we have, but can you tell us some of your highlights 
from your career there? So many highlights. It allowed me to be a bit of a thrill seeker. So I was able to bungee jump over the Zambezi between Zimbabwe and Zambia, Um, paraglide off of Devil's Peak in Cape Town, surf in Morocco. But the show was all about profiling interesting people and places. And so we profiled these men in Botswana who wear leather jackets and spikes and they love classic rock and they're they're metalheads and they have names like slasher and skull crusher and they literally walk around the desert in the hot desert and all this leather um you know paying homage to their favorite rock bands um i also interviewed a woman named bikki dude who is a tarab singer in tanzania now tanzania sits oh sorry in um zanzibar and zanzibar sits off tanzania right next to the Arabian Peninsula. And Tarab is a dialect, a singing style that is a blend of Swahili and Arabic. I never knew this existed. And when we were there doing a program, we just found out through a few people that there's this amazing woman named Bikki Dude who lives close by. And she's a bit of a local legend. No one really knew how old she was. And we didn't think we'd actually get to see her, but we went to where we thought she lived. And then she let us in, she sat us down, she sang to me in this beautiful kind of dialect I had never heard of. And it was just a very special moment. Um, And she has since passed away, but it was that type of adventure, not just the places I went, but the interesting people I was able to connect with and hopefully show the rest of the world that every region of Africa has its own unique taste and flavor. And we, we, you know, I get frustrated when people refer to Africa as a single entity because it's so diverse and rich. Yeah. Gosh, that sounds like an incredible experience. And as you say, you also described it as your own journey of discovery. Um, what, what, did you, what did you take away from that experience for yourself and your career? Well, one of the most jarring moments, and I don't know if I was either in Burundi or maybe it was Senegal, but, you know, Growing up in England and then moving to the US, you get, you know, you receive the label of being black. I moved to South Africa and because I'm mixed, I get the label of being colored. And so it's fascinating that your label and the perception of you changes based on where you are in the world. And so as I'm traveling the African continent, feeling like I am connecting with my roots, I'm back, you know, that type of thing. Um, It was jarring in some of the countries we go to because the kids would see me and they'd run up next to the car and I'd be waving and smiling. And then our fixer, who was like our local producer who facilitates where we can go, was telling me that the, the kids were yelling Mazungu. Hmm. And I'm like, okay, that sounds like a nice name. What's that about? He's like, well, it actually means outsider. And what it really means is white man. <laughs> and so I was saying, they are calling me a Mazungu. Wow. And He's like, yes, you're, you're quite obviously not from here by your appearance and, you know, by the way, by the way you're sweeping in. And so that was a moment for me. You know, some have described it as Africa not really having any black people at all, because depending on where you are, they identify themselves based on their tribal lineage, based on their history, which makes absolute sense. And there are, you know, there's more than a billion people across the whole continent. And so that was eye-opening for me to kind of be back in my own quote unquote motherland and to be treated as an outsider just helped shift my perspective a little bit on on how we try to categorize each other. Wow that's a really interesting point around identity and you know where you find your identity 
and uh, sounds sounds you know particularly poignant when you think that you people will see your identity in a similar from a similar perspective to you but but actually the reality is quite different it's really interesting yeah and for me it's eye-opening but it's also quite liberating because it exposes the limitations of the labels that we place on each other mm. you know how limiting to describe someone by color alone when that color betrays how they actually look mm. you know sometimes we can speak to what regions people are from or what nations i think that's a little bit more accurate but it's liberating in the sense that i've always felt that because i'm so different from most of the people who are around me it frees me up to just be myself to mm. be my kind of awkward shy <laughs> you know kind of strange bad joke telling self sometimes rather than trying to fit the mold of what other people expect you to be or want you to be and mm. I try to remember that anytime I feel different it just frees you up to be yourself mm. you mentioned um the the shyness before but it's not something that you would necessarily associate with a journalist although I can see your point about turning the questions on other people and you know maybe that's that. really what it's all about yeah. I mean when I the, the death of my sister was such a painful moment for myself personally and of course my family and was a real flashpoint for how things then changed. I didn't want people's pity. I didn't want to speak about it and get that frown and that look and that pat on the back. I wanted people to know me for who I was and what I could do. And while I hated, I mean, I remember in class, you know, the kids telling me to say ball and wall and, you know, I'm with, I'm, I host Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, Robin Leach. I mean, those were the things kids always wanted me to say, and I hated that. And so being able to turn things around is very empowering. Mm. And I've tried to remember that and holding, you know, I always talk back to my mother. And I, to this day, like to challenge authority. So there are certain aspects of my palette, of my personality that won't budge. And that's one of them. <laughs> you've been in the um, media industry for a number of years now well since you're 18 and I will be diplomatic and not count how many years that has therefore meant for you but I'm proud of it it's 20 <laughs> years I'm 20 getting years up there now. congratulations um, I'm interested in your thoughts on how the industry has changed over that period and I know that when you're at CNN you reported on the rise um, in the influence of social media uh, so I'd be interested to hear your views a bit more on how you think the industry has shifted or adapted over your 20 years. I think things are still changing, but platforms that we thought would save the day and connect us and, you know, alleviate misinformation, obviously, in many cases, have done the opposite. At CNN, um, they hired me when I was in my mid-20s after I graduated from UCLA, and a role that they put me in was one in which I would gather images and video sent to CNN. At the time, they had something called iReport, and it was basically a breaking news component. So if someone was close to something that was happening and they could send in their video and images, I was part of the team. My producers would vet that information, and then we would include that as part of our coverage. Um, surprisingly, I was just at an event um, last week in the in Martha's Vineyard, and a woman approached me and said, you may not remember me, but I remember you. You were on CNN during the Haiti earthquake many years ago. And I submitted a picture of my mother. She was missing. 
you put that on CNN and we got all these calls in and as I, I was able to find her and I've never been able to track you down a thank you. I just wow. want to say and I thought to myself, that's a moment like, wow, that really sent chills, chills over me. But at the same time, since then, what we've seen, I mean, CNN doesn't use that platform anymore because mobile phones and submitting images and video is now ubiquitous. But I think what we've realized is that the social platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok that we expect to be passive experiences where we're just checking in with the people we want to engage with are monetized to actually get under our skin and to get emotional reactions out of us. Mm -hmm. And we're only now starting to really understand that. I mean, it's at the point now where it's the older people in my family who send me things that they saw and read on Facebook that are just not true. Mm -hmm. And I do think that taking um, that governments intervening, which we always looked at as completely problematic. Um, I think now we see there is a lane for stamping out misinformation, particularly when it's related to the pandemic and um, vaccine skeptics here in the US. Mm. Yeah, with the plethora of different platforms, it must be, it must be quite hard as a journalist to triage you know what is appropriate what is um you know right what is helpful versus you know maybe putting too much credence on a particular position i mean how do how do you how do you make those judgment calls that's probably a, an impossible question to answer yeah, but we have to answer it every day um you know we always start with the institutions the doc well in, as it relates to the pandemic the institutions the cdc the doctors the verifiable information that we can then take back and cross check, you know, and, and this has even been done as far as what the US is doing with vaccines compared to what Europe is doing. Um, it's, I think what's the most alarming, though, is rather than social justice, where people could disagree on if police in general need more funding or less funding, and if that equals fewer violent interactions or more you know, there is a kind of gray area there when it comes to the pandemic and vaccines and efficacy, that's pretty clear. But yet still, there are enough people who are profiting from sharing misinformation. Um, and again, going back to how these platforms are designed, they are made to get you annoyed. And these algorithms know what your personality profile is and what will get under your skin. And so as I have tried to explain to my mother a few times, um, again, still has her scouser kind of opinion about everything and is very <laughs> insistent on it. You know, I just say, you don't have to argue with people on Facebook. You don't actually have to type anything with your friends you disagree with. And she's like, well, yeah, I know, but they're just so wrong and I need to tell them. And it's absolutely nonsense. That's the trick. They want, you know, the stuff that if you look at the most engaged items on Facebook, they are some of the most controversial because people are engaging with it either way. And I think we've got to smarten up and disconnect from that. But also I do think these platforms have a responsibility because they can measure it and see it in real time. It's mm, a really interesting point. I'm now thinking about all the Twitter spats that, uh, you know, politicians yeah. and others have, you know, got, uh, got sort of drawn into. And the spat is the point. Yeah. And if you look at President Trump, what he was able to do in his run up to the presidency and how he used these platforms as president, he he ran the show. He dictated what people spoke about. When I covered him for CBS News on, on weekends for a number of years, I would travel with him to South Florida, to New Jersey, where he stayed at his, his um, properties. 
And it was, you know, the tweet alerts, we would all get a physical reaction to them because it would have to be, okay, he just said President Obama spied on him during the pre, but you know, during the previous administration while he was running. How do you try to confirm that? But you can dis, you know, you can get information that disproves it, but by the time that you've done that, more people have engaged with the misleading statement. And of course, we saw how he was kicked off of his platforms after the January 6th insurrection. If you think that it takes that to get a politician booted off these platforms, I think, I think we're in a very sticky time. I wanted to ask you about another um, topic uh, around uh, freedom of press. And uh, I think you, you've regularly uh, moderated panel discussions and have spoken at conferences on freedom of the press. And it's something that our foreign secretary is particularly focused on. We've actually done work here at the British consulate uh, on it as well, given New York's uh, platform here. What, can you talk to us about your take on the state of press freedoms today? Are they getting worse or you know, are we actually doing better in some places? I tend to think of press freedoms as being tangentially related to just the health of democracy in places. And the view I grew up with, that idealistic view I had out of Milton Keynes and I've carried with me that, look, we're on this guaranteed trajectory of things improving and getting better. I no longer am so sure that is the case. Um, when it comes to, to press freedoms, you know, I, my thoughts immediately go to the female, the, the women journalists in Afghanistan, who as of, you know, earlier this year, you and I are speaking shortly after the official end of US military engagement there. But, you know, earlier this year, these, these women were able to, to do their jobs on television, to report from the streets of Kabul and the like. And now they are fearful for their lives and they don't know what will come next. I think that's a step backwards for press freedom. Any place where women cannot speak openly um, and disagree with those in power I think is not a place that can profess to have um, a quality of the press. Um, but usually it's only the high profile abductions of journalists, the kidnappings of journalists that get attention. You know, I tend to, to be most interested in the smaller acts of um, limiting journalistic freedoms as small and regional newspapers. I mean, I can tell you, I have relied on regional newspapers my entire career. As I've traveled the country, you know that the people who are already in these regions and cities know more than you do. And so you rely on that journalism to help fill in the blanks when you're telling a story. And many of them are just not financially viable and get scooped up by larger entities. Um, so I think we are in a, in a, in a time where we have to reconsider what type of journalism we want, and that if we want solid local journalism, we have to fund it and find ways to keep those newspapers and local news networks alive because uh, piece by piece, they're getting gobbled up. And, and that's largely uh, because so many ad dollars are going towards social media advertising and platforms. Um, so I do think we're in a tricky time and the expansion of press freedoms is not guaranteed. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you about New York um, because this is primarily a podcast focusing on New York and obviously you're based here now. Can you tell us a bit more about what you love about being here in this city? 
I have always loved New York. It's always amazed me and interested me. The first time I came to the city was a few years into my Channel One um, employment when I was named one of the 20 teens who will change the world, which was way above my head. And obviously I've not done a good job. Um, But I remember coming to Manhattan with my mom and they put us up at a hotel and we were just shocked by how small the hotel room was. Like it was the two separate beds and then walls and that was it. And I was like, I think there's been a mistake. No, that's that's Manhattan living. And we were able to have this event with um, Josh Groban and Solange, who was Beyonce's sister. So the first time I was in New York, I felt like I had just made it. It was like top of the world. And then I tried to strategize. I must get based here at some point in the future. Um, I wouldn't come back until I think I was covering... I can't remember what the second time I, I was in New York for, um, but I was covering the UNGA, for example, for CBS mm-hmm. News um, a few years ago. And it was just this affirmation that this is a place that brings people from all over the world. For someone like me who really enjoys the variety in, in food and in, in color and music and places and people, I don't think there's any better place in America than New York City, which is saying something because it's a pretty diverse country. Um, being here, so I, I ultimately was able to relocate here thanks to CBS News, and um, it followed my coverage of the Trump administration. And now currently, I actually split my time between New York and Washington, D.C. as I cover the transportation beat for the network. So I'm always kind of in motion. But living here during the pandemic was eye-opening as well. I can remember clearly when these um, quarantine orders were coming into place as the deaths were really skyrocketing in April and May of 2020. There was this tradition that came together at 7 p.m. each night where your neighbors start banging pots and pans out the window. And for the first few nights that happened, my wife and I were kind of like, what does that sound? That's weird. That's strange. But when you see so much death um, and it seems so dark and everybody experienced some form of depression we actually started opening our windows and banging pots and pans together and cheering just to have that sense of solidarity with your neighbors and honoring all those first responders the nurses the doctors and everybody who had to continue to work during the pandemic and thanking them for what they did and to me that was a very new york moment Mm. that you know, you are kind of very insular in a place where there are millions of people, but those were moments, 7 p.m. each night, when you certainly felt connected to everybody in your block. Mm. That's an incredibly unifying moment, isn't it? And so if there was one city in the world I could see myself in for a long time, it's here in New York. Mm. And finally, um, looking back to the UK, um, what do you what do you miss most about um uh, not living in the UK. And I, I should say, you know, maybe uh, what do you miss most about living in uh, Milton Keynes? I, I <laughs> took my, um, I took my driving test around the magic roundabout, which, uh, there you go. Uh, well done. Uh, horrendous roundabout in Milton Keynes consisting of, I think about eight mini roundabouts on yes. the one big one, but what, I do believe more roundabouts per square kilometer than anywhere else in I, England. I don't know I if mean, we should be I'm proud sure or ashamed. <laughs> Uh, but what do you miss about the UK, if anything? Oh, there's, there's lots that I miss. I always have my tea with me. So that's oh. something that keeps me close. But I think the thing I miss the most is English humor. <laughs> I mean, the ability to just in a very dry and cutting way, chop someone down, but be witty and sharp about it is in my family, 
that is that is the tradition you know all, all we do is make fun of each other um here in the u.s that same type of humor just doesn't go as far and i actually love coming across other english people or at least people who get the english humor um because it's just a much more enjoyable experience <laughs> it's a pretty unique quality it's very special. It's one of our best exports. I don't know why we're not focusing on it more. <laughs> Errol, um, thank you so much for sharing some of your incredible experiences with us. And thank you for sharing your personal story. It's been a pleasure having you on Brits and the Big Apple. Hannah, I'm totally humbled to be included. Thank you so much. This is a real pleasure.